Okay. You're Let's look at the, the book of Zephaniah. So Zephaniah chapter three, uh, nine through ten, and let's let's read the, the, the closing of this this, this prophetic work. So Zephaniah chapter three, starting in verse nine. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord, from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So this is the the closing of Zephaniah and such a, a fascinating little book. If you've been here for most of the Sunday nights as we've been walking through it this month, we've seen uh, this prophetic day of the Lord that was anticipated and pro- prophesied to be coming. And we see that this day of the Lord for most of the book of Zephaniah has been been this day of judgment in which God in his wrath is pouring out judgment upon not only his people Judah, but but all the neighbors of Judah, all the peoples of the earth, that this this judgment is coming. And so here at the end of the book, we we see the more encouraging aspects of that day of the Lord come to fruition as we see what what God is going to do, uh, not just in bringing judgment upon those who are doing evil, but as he converts the nations as he restores his people, as he protects them and preserves them. And we see in so many ways, the anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth, which we will see come to pass. And we've read about in the book of revelation. So as we look at this text, and I, I kind of want to break it down into to three sections that I think the text naturally falls into. We're going to look at the conversion of the nations in verse nine through 10. We'll look at Judah's return in verse 11 through 13. And then we'll look at Judah's restoration in verse 14 through 20. So let's, let's look first at those opening verses there, nine through 10, where we see the, the conversion of the nations. So last week we saw 
this series of judgments, these oracles against foreign nations that, that the Lord begins to work geographically around the perimeter of, of his people uh, against all these nations, Assyria, the Cushites, uh, the Moabites. And we see that the Lord works around and we see that judgment's coming upon them all. But in verse 9 through 10, we, we see this beautiful anticipation of the nations being converted. We see in verse 9 through 10 some rather, rather astonishing things. We see in verse 9 that the speech of the peoples is transformed to a pure speech, a pure speech. You know, one of the things Jesus always said is, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, our language can be a problem. You know, we, we often talk too much. We complain too much. We lie. We, we do, you know, we say mean things with our mouths, but all of that really roots itself in our hearts. It's from the wellspring of the heart that we do what we do as human beings. We are uh, uh, creatures of affection, of desire, and anything we do in terms of verbally in our sin or in our actions, all of that is springing forth from our hearts. But here we see that the speech of the nations of the earth is, is transformed into a pure speech. When you think about all these pagan nations that were all around Israel as their neighbors, a lot of them use their speech not to worship God, but to worship idols, to praise idols, to give their honor to idols. And here we see that the Lord will transform their speech. He will change the speech of the peoples of the earth. And we see that they may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with, with one accord. Again, that kind of anticipates a little bit what we read in Romans chapter 10. You know, that wonderful passage, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, quote Paul quoting the Old Testament here. But then he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we see that the, the nations are going to come and then have their speech renewed as a result of their transformed hearts because of their belief in Christ. We see that they too will call on the name of the Lord in faith. And it's amazing that we'll see them serve him with one accord. It's amazing to see multiple nations, multiple peoples come together united for one purpose in the Lord. We can't even do that as one nation, can we? <laughs> been keeping up with the politics this week. It's been nasty and divisive and, and mean-spirited across both party lines. But here we see that not just in a singular country, but in multiple countries, there's going to be unity. There's going to be a unity of purpose, a unity of praise, a unity of humanity. And so in many ways we're seeing kind of described here in verse 9 through 10, the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Kids, you guys learned about the Tower of Babel this morning. Is that right? I remember that. Any of the kids want to tell me what the Tower of Babel was about? Abby, do you remember what the Tower of Babel is about? Oh, you weren't in there. Okay, never mind. But Corinna and Jude was in there. So remember the Tower of the Babel is when humanity decided they're going to get together and they're going to build this big tower to try to get to God. And you remember what God does to their language? 
He mixes it up. That's right. He causes it to get confused, and then they all go their separate ways. And it's almost here, as we look to the end of the age, as we look to the day of the Lord, we see the Lord almost reversing that, that in many ways they're speaking uh, a pure speech, but they're also coming together in one accord. And we see that from, from all over the nations, from beyond the rivers of Cush in verse 10, we see the worshipers of God, uh, the daughter of my dispersed ones, they, they're all coming together, almost flowing into Jerusalem to the worship and praise of God. And so this happens not only all the way to Cush, which was Ethiopia, but it's happened all the way here in North Carolina. It's the very ends of the earth from Jerusalem, right? And we see everyone is coming together at this day of the Lord and worship and praise to God united uh, in their humanity and united in their praise. This passage reminds me in so many ways of what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, why don't you turn over there really quick so you can follow along and read it with me. But Ephesians chapter 2, hold Zephaniah, don't lose Zephaniah, but look over at Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 16, and we see how the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to, as Paul says, tear down the dividing wall of hostility, bringing peoples who aren't a people together as one in the church. Look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, that's pretty much all of us in the room, right? By, uh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our Peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." So we see that Paul is, is unpacking some rather beautiful truths here, that because of Christ, because of the gospel, God has taken these two groups of peoples, Jews and Gentiles, the Jews and everybody else, right? And that he is bringing the nations together into the commonwealth of Israel, so to speak, so that we might share in the promises of the covenant, and that these promises are given to us by the blood of Christ, who through his death and by his blood brings the two as one, tearing down that dividing wall of hostility. So the church then is not a, a, a group bound by ethnic categories or ethnic boundaries, but rather God is taking people from all over the place and he's making us one in Christ. We see here in Zephaniah 3, 9 through 10, that this is anticipating what we're seeing happening now as the church is spreading to the very ends of the earth and will one day come to, to full consummation at the end of the age. These are some, some beautiful truths. But let's look at verse 11 through 13, kind of the next set of verses here, as we look at Judah's return. And so let's look at this together. So we see on that day, verse 11, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst 
your proudly exultant ones. So we see in verse 11, God shifts the, the attention back to his people. Um, and we see that even though they've rebelled against God, we see that God is going to remove from among them the proudly exultant ones, the ones amongst them uh, in Israel, in Judah, who didn't love the Lord, who weren't following the Lord. Remember, we uh, a big theme in the book of, the, of Zephaniah are those who are syncretists, those who are not really serious about following the Lord, but they're adding other religious beliefs and practices and kind of mingling it in there. We see that, that God is going to remove all of those people who aren't, aren't truly a part of his covenant people, a part of that remnant, so to speak. And this is a similar idea we, we again pick up in the New Testament, particularly when Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? That at the end of the age, those will be separated, the wheat from the tares. And though we should aspire the purity of the church. And that's, again, a key part of what we believe as a Baptist congregation is we believe in, in the purity of the church. We believe that the, each local church should be a believer's church. But in many ways, this is an idealistic vision that can only be done by one who can truly judge the hearts and the, the, the hidden parts of the human heart. We should do as much as we can on our end to make sure that each local church has members that are believers in Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, I can't know someone's heart. You can't know someone's heart for sure. Only the Lord does. And even in Baptist churches, even in Baptist churches who take membership very, very seriously, there could be those who are on the membership of the church who really don't know Christ, who are secretly and hiddenly proudly exultant amongst God's people. And we see that at the end of the day, end of the end of the age, on this day of the Lord, the proudly exultant ones will be removed, the proud in heart, those who are not truly humbling themselves before the Lord. And we see that those who will be a part of this people of God, those people who will return are going to be those, not those who are haughty at the end of verse 11, but they, those who are lowly, as we see in verse 12, those who are going to remain in the people of God are those who are humble and lowly, verse 12 says. And then Zephaniah gives us a description of what these people are like. Who are those who are true followers of the Lord, those who truly follow Christ? And we see that they are humble and lowly. They're people, Zephaniah says, who seek refuge in the Lord. The Lord is there. They put their faith in him. They trust in him. We see that they're people who do justice. They act rightly. They do rightly. We see they're people who speak the truth. They don't tell lies. They don't, they don't spread malicious gossip. They don't have no deceit in their mouth. They speak the truth. And we see that they're people that ultimately who rest in God. Look at the end of verse 13. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them Afraid, They rest in the Lord, complete trust in him. And again, this description of the, of the type of people who are in Christ's kingdom, in this kingdom that will be consummated at the day of the Lord, uh, they're a lot like the people that Jesus would describe in the Beatitudes. In many ways, as Jesus gives those famous Beatitudes, blessed are the, uh, he's giving the, the description of the temperament of the type of person who has truly been converted, who is truly born again, who is truly a citizen of the kingdom of God. And again, it's so similar to the types of things we see here in Zephaniah. This is what Jesus would say. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be 
comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those Beatitudes in many ways, very similar to the types of characteristics and attributes. We see Zephaniah describe of those who are going to remain in the midst of the, the people of God. God's going to, to remove the tares, the chaff, the weeds from God's people on that day. And those who will be left are the humble and the lowly, the poor and spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers. These are the type of people who will make up the people of God in Christ's kingdom. And it's amazing to see how many of these same attributes and attitudes we've seen in the book of Philippians, particularly the last couple of weeks, as we thought about the humility that we are to exhibit in our relationships with one another and the humility that's ultimately exhibited by Jesus Christ himself self and the example we have in him. So remember humility, a humble spirit is a Christian spirit. This is a defining characteristic of those who have been truly born again. It means that we recognize who we really are. We recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that we're dependent upon the Lord. We're dependent upon his grace alone for the salvation that we have. And so knowing who we are, humbling ourselves before the Lord in repentance leads to saving faith. So again, humility is you can't be humble without the spirit of God working in you. You can't be humble without the, the Lord saving you in this miraculous way and causing you to be born again. And we see that those who are going to remain when they return to the land are going to be the humble, the lowly in spirit, the, the proudly exultant ones. The Lord's going to remove them from their midst. They're not going to be there anymore. But the ones who will remain on that great day of the Lord are those who humble themselves, those who are lowly, those who seek the Lord as a refuge. And that leads to the, the final section here in Zephaniah of Judah's restoration in verse 14 through 20. And here we, we get this beautiful celebration, this joyous celebration of, of what that day of the Lord will be like when the Lord establishes his kingdom forever. And so we see it's a day of joy, right? Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So this is going to be a day of joy. It's a day of celebration. It's a day to, to look forward to. It's a day of praise to God. And we see one of the reasons why they praise and rejoice and exult in the Lord with all their heart is because of verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. As we looked at Zephaniah, we've seen that, that Judah is just as much in the crosshairs of God's judgment as all the other nations of the earth. But even still, God is going to be gracious. He's going to take away the judgments against his people. He is going to clear away the enemies of God's people. And isn't that exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? Isn't this exactly what he's done? Because in our sin, we were receiving the judgment and, and wrath of God. That's what we deserve. That was our lot. That's what we are, are, are just rewards, so to speak. The wages of sin is death. 
But yet in the cross of Christ, we see that God forgives us, that he takes away the judgment of our sin that we deserved, and he instead places it upon his son, Jesus Christ. But in Christ, not only does the, the judgment of God be taken away from us, but we also see that our enemies are defeated as well. The two greatest of them being sin and death itself. Death will no longer have victory over us because we've been free and cleared by Christ and by his sacrifice. And we see on that great day of the Lord, verse 15, that the the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. God will be with his people. He will be the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And so we see that this great Christ, this great king that is anticipated will be the Lord. And again, as we think about the mysteries of Christ's incarnation that we even thought about this morning, we see how sweet it is that, that God has come and become one of us in the midst of us, and that he is our king, and that in that great day of the Lord, God himself will be our king, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that in the meantime, we do not let our our hands grow weak. We do not let ourselves get tired. We continue to praise and worship the Lord. Look at verse 16. Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. You see, it's easy as we think about uh, this, this time between the times that we live in to begin to grow impatient with how the Lord so often tarries, to get impatient and frustrated. And, uh, but, but again, we see that, that God is encouraging us to, to not grow weak as we wait for the Lord, as we wait for this great day to come, which this day will be a, great, a day of great joy because the Lord delights in his People. And we see on that day in verse 19, we see that on that day that the Lord will save the lame, that he'll gather the outcasts, and he will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And this is exactly what began to happen and is happening now that Jesus is coming to the world 2,000 years ago. It's interesting that as Jesus arrives, he's constantly pointing back to these Old Testament prophecies and saying, hey, this, this is happening. Now, in your midst, the kingdom of God has arrived as the Son of God has arrived, and it's being authenticated by the great miraculous signs that Jesus has done. And, and so you think, I think of Matthew chapter 11, where John is in prison, John the Baptist, and he's in prison and he's, he's uh, heard, hearing about what Christ is doing. He's hearing about the things that Jesus is doing. And, and again, John's whole purpose in life was to wait and to long for, to prepare the way for the Messiah, for this Christ that all of the Old Testament anticipates. And so John sends his disciples and they go to Jesus and they ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And this is how Jesus responds back to, to John. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah here, but it's interesting, even here in Zephaniah, we see that the the day in which the lame will walk again will 
has come in the day of Jesus Christ. And this leads to an important concept, an important understanding as we think about trying to understand these, new t- uh, these Old Testament promises and these wonderful blessings that the, the Old Testament speaks of. How do we understand the nature of their fulfillment? Because as we look at the end of Zephaniah, we see that in a lot of ways, many of this, much of this has already been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And yet some of it has not yet fully been fulfilled at the second coming and won't be until the second coming of Christ. So one of the things we have to understand as we look at the idea of the kingdom of God, not just in the new Testament, but anticipated in the old Testament is, and this is the thing that the nation, even the disciples had a hard time wrapping their minds around at first is that the kingdom of God has come in two stages. The first stage was Christ's humiliation, his suffering, and he came as the suffering servant. And the kingdom was established at the arrival of Jesus. As Jesus is preaching, as Jesus has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Guess what? I'm the kingdom. And But at the same time, a lot of these, these anticipations we see for Christ's kingdom won't fully be realized until the end of the age. So, for example, the conversion of the nations. We're seeing that happening now, right? We're living proof of that. 2,000 years, here we are, we, the, the pagan Gentiles of the world, are now brought into the covenant people of God. We're sharing in the, the commonwealth of Israel. We're sharing in those covenant promises. And yet still the gospel is going forth throughout all the world, and we want to be a part of that work. But at the same time, it's not fully yet been realized. The people of God across the globe have yet to be gathered. We've yet to see the kingdom of God dwell physically upon the earth. We've yet to to see Christ come down from heaven and establish his kingdom on the earth in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. All of that is is coming. But we see that what God is doing in this this establishment of his kingdom is he's he's taking the shame of his people, the shame of their sin, and he's turning it into to praise. That he is turning it into praise for himself. He's gathering. He's restoring. This is what God is doing. And so as we end the, the book of Zephaniah, as we've seen this book that has so firmly and even harshly described the judgment and punishment that God will be bringing upon the wicked, at the end of the book, we are wait, waiting in eager expectation for the day of the Lord to come because those who are in Christ, those who have Christ as their king, those who have humbled themselves and are low before the Lord, they, those who have called upon the name of the Lord, they have great things in store. The Lord will bring his kingdom to fruition. He will restore our fortunes and we will dwell with our king for all the earth and the new heavens and the new earth. And so we look forward to that day of the Lord, a day of a fear, a frightened judgment for many, but for those who are in Christ, a day of joy, a day of salvation, a day of rest. And so we look forward to that day. But let me close this out in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for this book of Zephaniah, a book, again, that that we haven't done a lot of studying in in our own personal lives. I know I haven't. But Lord, it's been such a joy to walk through this book together, uh, to learn from your word, to learn what, what your word has to say, even from these smaller minor prophet books that we so often neglect or gloss over when it comes to our personal daily Bible reading. But Lord, we know that, that, that all of your word is good.
And Father, as we've looked to this, uh, this little book over these last few weeks, Lord, we've learned some amazing things about you, about who you are, about your sovereignty, about, about this day of the Lord, this day of judgment, this day of wrath, this day of punishment, but Lord, also this day of salvation, this day of rest, this day of the gathering of your humbled people born by your spirit. Lord, we look forward to that day. And so, Father, we pray that as we live between the times, as we live between the inauguration and the consummation of your kingdom, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, not only in rejoicing in the king who has come, but, Lord, as we continue to rejoice in the king who is coming and who will come very soon. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for taking our shame and turning it into praise. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, thank you for being here tonight.